Our uh, first sermon reading today comes from Mark chapter 1. I'll be reading verses 1 through 3. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Our next uh, passage uh, comes from Mark chapter 10. This is uh, verses 35 through 45. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one in your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those who have been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus said to them, to him and said, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentile lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be greatest among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Our sermon text today is also from Mark chapter 1. I will be reading verses 29 through 31. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her, and she began to serve them. Now, when we read the Bible, uh, we have a tendency to focus on the main characters. You know, the great heroes of the faith. uh, People like Abraham, Moses, David, Peter, Paul. However, the Bible is a really long and complex story. And it introduces alongside these uh, notable cast of characters, ones that don't get a lot of mention. Yet, one of the key features of the Bible is that it rarely introduces details without purpose. Seldom are words included as just mere ornamentation. Therefore, I want to make the assertion that the minor characters are often there for a reason, and their story is included alongside those of Abraham and David and Peter and Paul for a purpose. Now, last summer, I did a sermon series looking at various figures in the Old Testament uh, that stood outside the chosen line of Israel. And I found that to be a very stimulating and fruitful avenue of thought. So kind of in that vein, this summer, uh, I thought I would do a similar sermon series focusing on several stories in the Gospel of Mark that center on nameless women. Uh, So in the time of Mark, uh, ancient Israel and the greater Roman world, 
was a highly patriarchal society. And yet, interestingly, Mark includes many stories about named and unnamed women in his writing. Famously, Mark closes with the angel at the empty tomb entrusting the news of the resurrection to three women, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome. And this detail, uh, this detail had been lost or, or probably even omitted uh, by the established tradition of witnesses of the risen Christ that Paul recounts in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, there's this, uh, there's this account of the different people that saw the resurrection. And it seems that Paul is not just uh, uh, making this account up. He's saying, like, this is an established uh, testimony uh, that you can ask anyone who knows about, and they'll uh, recall this. But what's significant uh, is that this, uh, this account in 1 Corinthians was composed much earlier than the book of Mark. And many people think that these women were admitted uh, from the official testimony that Corinthians is recalling because women were not considered a reliable witness in the uh, ancient world. And so their inclusion would have been an embarrassment in a way. Now, I want us to look at Mark specifically because I think this is an important topic to Mark. I think that's why he includes it. It's kind of not necessarily uh, a good idea that he does so. And so my point is that I think Mark is including these for a very important purpose. My motivation is not to make Mark uh, politically correct. Rather, I think these stories are purposeful, and they're important in how Mark tells his story in the gospel. He, Mark frequently takes special interest in uh, the ministry of Jesus to the marginalized. Uh, therefore, I think these stories are important to understand a key aspect of the meaning of the good news of the kingdom of God. But before we, we move our uh, focus to today's sermon, we need to understand a little bit of the story that Mark is trying to tell. It's important to remember that Mark was written prior to the other Gospels. Mark's the first Gospel. Uh, there's been a huge debate among scholars as where exactly to classify the Gospels in the literature of the ancient world. What, what is the genre of Mark? What, is, what, is the, what type of literature? And the problem is that it doesn't seem to fit any known genre of the time. Uh, the prevailing conclusion is that Mark is doing something new at his gospel. Uh, as Mark is the first of the gospels, it is then Mark that sets the tone for the others. Now, the reason this is important is because the form of a literary work, its genre, the type of literature it is, is important in figuring out its meaning, what it's trying to tell us. So we can see that what Mark is trying to teach us by seeing how he structures his Gospels. The details, even the seemingly insignificant ones, such as the stories of the nameless women, are included for a reason. Mark has carefully crafted his story in this particular form, selecting particular pieces of information to compose his work the same way an artist would select particular colors of paint. Uh, the way he would arrange his subjects and locate them on the canvas to create his masterpiece. So in order to understand a particular passage or event in Mark, we must see how it fits with Mark's overall story. 
So Mark's gospel can be divided roughly into two halves, with the first half focusing on Galilee and centering on the question of the identity of Jesus. Who is Jesus? The disciples, as well as the readers, are often confronted with this question. Who do you say that I am? The inability of Peter and the rest of the disciples to answer this question creates a crisis, which leads to the second half of Mark in which Jesus more openly answers this question as he journeys from Galilee to Jerusalem, ending ultimately on the cross. Now, my point is that the structure of Mark's gospel tells us that what Mark is mostly about is the question of Jesus's identity. Who is Jesus? Lots of Jews were executed on crosses. What made this one special? Mark has led us to believe that this is a question easily answered because he begins his gospel by telling us exactly who Jesus is. If you look at our first scripture reading from Mark, we're told uh, exactly who he is. He begins with the words of the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So in seven words in English and only five in Greek, Mark manages to uh, communicate a great deal. The beginning is not just a way of introduction. It's a reference to Genesis 1-1 in the beginning, when the new heavens and earth were created. Mark wants us to know that the gospel is a story about new creation. This is a new world that's coming about. Uh, The world is being remade anew. The word gospel, as I'm sure many of you know, means literally glad tidings or good news. And its usage was firmly attached in the Roman world to political propaganda. Gospel can mean uh, the good news of a military victory, but it was often associated with Caesar, the ruler of the Roman Empire, who was considered divine. His ascension to power was cause for glad tidings of good news because of the great things that he would soon do as a result of his rule. His ordinances, his commands, his victories were all good news. Mark's Jesus is claiming this good news for Jesus and challenging Caesar and his kingdom. It is the rule of Jesus that will result in, bright, in, in a bright and glorious future, a new golden age. And therefore, it is Jesus' ordinances, victories, and commands that are truly good news. In the introduction, we have then the Jewish concept of new creation combined with the Roman concept of good news being brought together by Mark. Ultimately, these two worlds will collide, the Roman and the Jewish, in the third term and the seeming answer to Jesus' identity, Christ. Christ is from the Greek word Christos, and it means anointed one, which is a translation of the Hebrew word Masaak, which you probably know better as Messiah. It was this Messiah who, according to Jewish expectations of the time of Jesus, would bring about a new kingdom, by defeating the powers that enslaved and oppressed the Jews, namely Rome. Now Mark continues his introduction by quoting a mishmash of scriptures having to do with this messianic expectation. This seems all well and good and conforms with expectations. First we have a quotation from Exodus about the freeing of the Hebrew Hebrew people from Egypt, journeying out of the wilderness to the promised land. Then we have a quote from Malachi that the return of God would be announced by a messenger who prepares the way. Here's the thing, though. 
Mark introduces his quotation by saying it's written by Isaiah. But so far, we have quotes from Exodus and Malachi, and it's only the very last line of that section that comes from Isaiah. And there's another problem. The Malachi quote has been cut off prematurely, and its last clause replaced by the quotation from Isaiah. If we were to turn to Malachi 3.1, we would read, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Yet Mark has replaced this part about the Lord suddenly coming to the temple with a passage from Isaiah about a way being made in the wilderness. Mark then takes us to the wilderness with John the messenger of Exodus and Malachi and identifies him with John the Baptist. Isaiah's passage is a picture of a royal procession typical of the ancient Near East in which the king would be met outside of the city by a royal delegation. He would then be led into the city to be honored. But here we have something different. We have the king going not to a city, but to the wilderness rather than Jerusalem and the temple. He is met by the common people, not by the nobles and the powerful. His ministry centers in Galilee on the periphery rather than in Jerusalem and the temple. He associates with people who are broken, with outcasts, as opposed to the notables of high standing one might expect in a royal procession. He would be announced by a strange man dressed in camel hair and eating locusts and honey, who was certainly not part of the official religious establishment. He would appear as one of the anonymous crowd that's actually just coming to see John the Baptist. His town is listed as Nazareth, which is a place with no particularly interesting history in the sacred scriptures. His followers originate mostly from the poor and trade class rather than the elites. So in this introduction, we already have Mark setting out a picture of a Messiah who is not quite following the accepted script which is part of the point Mark is trying to make about Jesus' identity. Mark introduces Jesus as the Messiah, but through most of the first half of Mark, Jesus commands anyone who even begins to grasp who he really is to remain silent. Scholars actually refer to this, they have a term for this, they call it the messianic secret. This culminates in the great crisis of faith in the first half of the book that I referred to when Jesus asked, who do you say I am? And Peter responds, you are the Christ. After telling the disciples to tell no one about him, Jesus then predicts that he must suffer and be killed. And Peter's response is to rebuke him, to argue with him. The crisis of the first half of Mark centers entirely on this idea of Jesus' identity. Who is the Christ? What does it mean to be the Messiah? Because According to the disciples and Peter, it's not really what we thought. In the introduction, Mark has led us to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, but it seems as though Jesus has rejected this title. However, what we're going to learn as we read through Mark is that Mark is redefining what it means to be the Messiah. Just as in the children's sermon, our idea of what the title of the book, Ducks and How to Make Them Pay, means has to be reevaluated. Mark is reevaluating the meaning of the term Messiah. 
And what I'm going to argue over the next few weeks is that part of how Mark does this is through this story, uh, this series of stories of nameless women. But before we look at our sermon text, I want to look at another story in the second half of Mark involving the disciples. Whereas in the first half of Mark, the messianic identity is kept secret, in the second half, Jesus more openly explains what it means to be the Messiah. Here, Mark tears down the prevailing view of the Messiah as a military conqueror intent on initiating a new political kingdom centered in Jerusalem rather than Rome. Now, our reading from Mark 10 tells the story of a dispute between the disciples' conception of what they think it means for Jesus to be a Messiah and what Jesus actually means. James and John ask Jesus for a position of honor in Jesus' kingdom. They have left everything to follow Jesus, believing that the kingdom of God is at hand, just as Jesus has been announcing. Understandably, their thoughts now turn to what reward they will receive for their faithfulness and sacrifice. They hope for confirmation that they will have a high position in the court when King Jesus at last takes his throne. But the problem is they have misunderstood fundamentally the nature of Jesus' kingdoms. Their minds have an image of a kingdom, but it is like every other kingdom that has come before. But what Jesus needs for them to understand is that he is not just a new king with a new kingdom, but he is redefining the very concept of what a king and a kingdom look like. This is another, not just another example of meet the new boss, same as the old boss, to quote the who. Jesus makes the point that by contrasting the essential difference between his kingdom and the disciples' worldly idea of a kingdom, the revolution that Jesus is bringing is not a kingdom that uses power and uh, authority for the purposes of expression and exploitation. That is the kingdom of Caesar. Jesus' mission is not to repeat such a kingdom with a different cast of characters that James and John are seeking to be two of. Jesus' mission goes deeper than that. Jesus' kingdom is one that uses power and authority for the purpose of service. In the most shocking statement of all, Jesus says that if you want to be in a position of honor in his kingdom, you have to be a slave. This is not something different. This is the world turned absolutely upside down. Now, keep in mind, this incident with James and John is more than halfway through the book of Mark. In fact, in the next chapter, Jesus is going to enter Jerusalem on his way to his eventual crucifixion and resurrection. That means James and John have followed Jesus for quite some time now. They've sat in his feet. They've listened to him. They've saw what he's done. And it seems hard to believe that they would have not yet gotten this point. After all, pretty much all Jesus has been doing up to this point was healing people, casting out demons, feeding large groups of people, etc. It would be hard to miss the point that serving people was what Jesus was all about. However, I think it demonstrates how ingrained our preconceptions can be, how quickly we can jump to certain conclusions. We can easily make the facts fit our own ideas. No doubt James and John saw the miracles as mere demonstrations of Jesus' authority, which would allow him to attract and build an army of followers to lead against Rome. They likely saw Jesus' works as a means rather than an end. What the disciples failed to realize, though, was that Jesus' ministry of service was 
the kingdom of God. Now let us turn back to Mark 1, to our sermon text contained in verses 29 through 31. This story occurs very early in Jesus' public ministry, right after Jesus calls his first disciples, including James and John. Jesus has just exercised a demon, and he'll go on to heal a whole crowd of people and cast out a lot more demons. Now, in the ancient world, illness went along with demons since both were seen as forces of the underworld, forces of death. In the ancient world, uh, it was the realm of death had reached up and partly grabbed control of you. You were living in its grip. Jesus' healings and exorcisms would have been viewed as an attack on these dark forces that had control of the world. And the story of Peter's mother-in-law is told in the midst of this holy war. Her name is not given. We only have a very short narrative of this event, three verses. Only a few details are mentioned. Namely, she has a fever and she's laying ill from that fever. Evidently, her condition is serious enough that it has uh, rendered her immobile. Now, we need to remember this was the ancient world. And a fever was potentially very serious. Anybody, uh, if you ever read the, uh, like, Laura Ingle Wilder books, you know that when people got fevers, it could be bad. Uh, there were no antibiotics or vaccines back then, so every fever was potentially deadly. Uh, likely everyone knew someone who had died of a fever. So don't take this, uh, you know, just remember what time we're dealing in. As Mark tells the story, Jesus immediately leaves the synagogue. Jesus is immediately told about her. The immediacy is letting us know that all these healings and exorcisms are occurring on the Sabbath. Many had reduced the symbolism of the Sabbath to rule-following legalism. But if we were to use... uh, Lundbergian technology, as Chris uh, has been doing over the last year, they have taken something holy and they have made it sacred. The Sabbath was established back in Genesis, and it was about God taking rule over creation. It was about rest and order and life and goodness. In fact, there could be no better day to heal people on than the Sabbath because healing and freedom would demonstrate a restoration of order of good order to the creation. A creation that had resulted in Genesis 1, not from conflict as in the other ancient Near Eastern creation stories, but merely the exercise of the will of God who was about giving life, of providing, of service. A God who does not seize rest by combat or violence, but rather simply by serving and providing effortlessly Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law, raising her up from her sickbed. Notice the fever is described as leaving her. The force of sickness and death are no longer able to claim their victim. However, here's the point. Notice what she does immediately after she is healed. She began to serve them. It's interesting that Mark, who is especially and particularly precise in his storytelling, includes this detail. There's very little extraneous information in Mark. So when Mark drops details like this, they are given to us for a purpose. And here's the interesting thing. 
The Greek word used here for service is diakoni. The next time we find the word diakoni used in Mark is a dispute among the disciples about who is greatest. Jesus, of course, famously breaks up that dispute by announcing that whoever is greatest in the kingdom of God must be last of all and a servant of all. The next time after that is found in our scripture reading today, when James and John argue over their position in the kingdom. We already know how that ends, with Jesus declaring his kingdom as a, of a different order, unlike the kingdoms of this world, a kingdom defined by service. So what I think Mark is doing here, and I think he's doing it very intentionally, is drawing a contrast between the actions of Peter's mother-in-law and the disciples. It's no coincidence that Mark has placed this short story right after the calling of the disciples. This woman, who is not named, demonstrates the proper behavior of a disciple of Christ, in that her first aspect, her first instinct is to serve. She has grasped the key aspect of the kingdom of God that the disciples continually miss and get wrong. The essence of discipleship is service. Likely the disciples saw Jesus' actions as a means rather than the end. What Peter's mother-in-law understands and demonstrates is the kingdom of God is about service. Now, I know I've made this point Uh, that service is one of the key aspects of Jesus's kingdom multiple times in sermons. Uh, I've made the point that Jesus has redefined power and authority as a responsibility to others in order, in contrast to worldly concepts of power and authorities. I make my apologies for returning to this again and again because it's important. And it's something we as the church need to continually hear because we too fall into the same trap As the disciples, like the disciples, we in the church fall prey to the error of wanting to replace the current systems of power and authority with their own. Yet we fail to see the need to implement the truly revolutionary idea of Christ, who saw equality with God not as something to be held to for his own advantage, but emptied himself and took on the form of a servant. The wheel of history doesn't need another turn. It needs to be broken. That's for you Game of Thrones fans. (laughs) However, that is not the only point I want to make in the sermon today. You see, there is a fundamental disconnect all through the Gospel of Mark between the disciples' view of Messiah and the coming kingdom and Jesus' view of his Messiahship and his Father's kingdom. This disconnect is highlighted in Mark by stories like this, by Peter's mother-in-law's easy grasp of discipleship at the beginning of the gospel and the disciples' difficulty to understand Jesus' mission despite spending so much time with Jesus. The conflict over their failure to understand their duty as disciples to be in service to humanity occurs right before the triumphal ministry and the end of Jesus' ministry. Which leads to the main point I want to make here. If the disciples can be so slow to grasp the true nature of Jesus' ministry, despite all the time they spend hearing his teaching, perhaps we need to see this as a warning to us all. 
We need to see this as a warning about how easily we can slip into our own understanding of what it means to be Christ followers and yet miss the mark entirely. I just realized I did not intend the pun. (laughs) History is repeat with examples of atrocities, misdeeds, and wrongs committed by the church in the name of Christ based on a flawed understanding of the teachings of Scripture. Let us never be so arrogant that we can somehow be immune. After all, those with the best credentials like James and John, the first and among the most intimate of Jesus's followers, can so easily miss such an important and central part of the teachings of Christ. So how then do we avoid committing this error? An error that is so pernicious and so easily committed. So I think I've got three suggestions. I think the first step is is just simply to acknowledge that this is a possibility and come to Scripture with humility, knowing that we can pervert and twist and obfuscate the Bible. It is if the disciples can uh, do so with so much advantage as they had, so can we. An awareness of this can help engender the caution necessary to combat our arrogance. Second, we must be willing to listen to those in our community and not just those with the correct credentials. Nameless women can be right and people with names so important to Christianity like James and John can be completely wrong. Jesus tells us that children sometimes grasp his kingdom the best. Third, and I think Hebrews 1 is particularly helpful here. If you were to go to Hebrews 1, it begins by acknowledging that God spoke in the past through the prophets, but he has most clearly revealed himself in Jesus. According to Hebrews, Christ, Jesus Christ, is the exact imprint of the nature of God. That means if we are to be faithful to God, if we are to accurately and fully represent his kingdom and his nature, if we are to carry out his message and his work to the world, then we must adhere not to a set of rules and regulations, not to a system of doctrine, but to Christ and Christ alone. We must constantly meditate on his life and his teachings and wrestle with it in humility and in community, and we must let it challenge and convict us. To do so means that we can be faithful representatives and disciples of Christ. We have been healed. Now it is our task to rise up and serve. Practice resurrection.